I was thinking about this uh, right before I was coming up. Um, somebody asked me not that long ago, do you get nervous when you preach? Jeff, what do you think? <laughs> no? Yes. <laughs> I think we all do. I, there's always a moment, I feel like for me, there's always one moment right before I get ready to preach where I want to run away, where I think, what am I doing? Like, like what? You know, I can get out of here. It's not too late kind of thing. Um, I've yet to do that. You never know. So if... If it happens, one of you gentlemen will step up. But there's always a moment where you do get nervous. You always do get a little bit of fear um, or some fear in that. And I, and, and I thank God in a sense for that because I do think it's a good thing to know that we cannot do this on our own. And so I, I just, I confess to you and, and to the Lord, just y'all, this is, it's the Lord's word. It's, that's what makes anything effective is because it's his word, not because it's a man in a pulpit or a man's ability to speak, but it is the, the beauty and the power of the word of God. Like Evan talked about in, in uh, the nine o'clock service today, that is the word that changes us. That is the word that convicts us and that the word draws us in. And so this morning, I just want to start off with a simple question, and, and it's not complicated. Many of you would, might have an answer right off the bat, but I want to ask the question, what is discipleship? Um, I'm not going to preach necessarily on what is discipleship, but I'm going to use it to get into what I am going to preach about. But I do want you to think about what is discipleship. When you think about what discipleship is, I think a lot of times we have these, um, in Christ, our Christian world, the Christianese language, we're all familiar with the word disciple or discipleship. And I think we might use it commonly, but not really understand what it really means for our lives. And in order to really understand what it means, what discipleship is, it really, we have to understand what it means to be a disciple. And I, th- I would imagine most of you would know this or have heard this before, but to be a disciple, simply put, really is just to be a follower, right? It's a follower, a follower of Jesus. To be a disciple of Christ is to follow after Christ. Um, it is what every single believer in this room is, all right? As a Christian, we don't ex-discipleship or being a disciple we get born again and we follow after Christ. This is the call of the believer. This is what it, we, we become born again. We become disciples. But in that, when I was thinking about this, the disciple is that we see this even today in many ways, um, many different professions, many different fields. Um, I was thinking about doctors. Um, they graduate medical school and I think they go to residency and they shadow uh, other doctors, right? And they learn from people who had experience and they've learned and they follow after these doctors and they will learn the craft or the skill. And, it's, and, and you see this with all kind of different, um, different type of professions is where people will begin to follow after that. And so that's what a disciple is. A disciple is just somebody who's following after and learning. And in the way it was in the, in, in the day of Jesus that this was a common, common practice that people would have disciples. But it was the sense of like a disciple was this. You did what your, what your rabbi did and you walked as he walked and you talked as he talked and you acted as he acted. In other words, they became who their, their rabbi was. And this is the truth for all Christians. This is really what discipleship is. If you're a disciple, you are in discipleship. And discipleship, if I could put it very simply, is this. It is really just the process of us becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. And every single one of us is in this place. Every single one of us, right now, God is working in your life to form you, to fashion you, to becoming more like Jesus. Now, you and I both know that we'll never attain perfection, and that's not what we mean by that. But we do mean that God is calling us and moving us to become more like him. I've often heard it said that Jesus is such a, and he is, right? He's the standard and his holiness. And there's things that we will never be, certainly, that Jesus is. But the Bible does give clear commands that we are to imitate him and follow him. 
And that's so the, the truth is, is that though it may seem impossible, the fact that it seems impossible declares that it requires a God who denies the impossible. So to be made like Christ, to be conformed like Christ, requires a God who thrives in impossible situations. In other words, God, the Father, is able to make you like the Son. I I, I personally have really thought about that a lot recently, and I don't think we marvel at that enough. And I think part of the problem is because we don't think we're as bad as we really are. But the truth is, we are corrupt, sinful, wretched people deprived heaven we have nothing good in in ourselves and god can take that and somehow get that individual to reflect the image of the son of god the one who created all the stars who holds things in place who every breath in this room is causing to happen how does god get us to do that how does, he, how does he get us to the place? It's incredible. I just, I think it's an incredible thing and I think it's beautiful because even that's, and Evan even mentioned this in Sunday school, not Sunday school, nine o'clock service, um, is that in Romans eight twenty nine? that's what he says. God is conforming us. He predestined, he chose us. He is, he's conforming us to his son's image. It is his will. It is his work in your life. And so in some senses, I believe this, I really do, that the greatest need of our life is obviously to be reconciled to the Father through salvation with Christ, by Christ. But I also believe one of the greatest needs in our life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I don't think we think about that enough. Sometimes I think our greatest, we think our greatest needs might be we need this prayer answered. Or we need uh, a new job. Or we need this healing. But the truth is, is those things, yes, they are prayers that we need answered at times. But more importantly, what we need in this life is to be like Jesus. And the only way it will ever happen is through God doing this in us by his power of his spirit, by the work of grace in our life, which we've heard so faithfully from this pulpit preached, about the grace of God, God's divine influence to work in our hearts, to make us what he's called us to be. Grace, Titus teaches us that grace teaches us how to deny ungodliness and to walk in righteousness. In other words, the grace of God teaches me how to become like Jesus fashions me into the life of Christ. And this is what God is doing with all believers. This is God's desire for all of us. And so understanding that we are all on this path of discipleship, we're all on this path of becoming more like Jesus every single day, it makes me begin to wonder, then God, where? How are you working in my life? What is the way of Christ? What is the way? What are the ways I'm to be conformed to? What am I to be conformed to? And it is the way of Christ. It is the life of Christ. And so... We're going to turn to the book of Mark today. Um, and, and, and Mark is a gospel that is often talked about as maybe being the most uh, discipleship focused. There's so many lessons about discipleship and about what it means to follow after Jesus or what it means that the way of Christ is. And I'm only going to look at one portion of this today because there's so many different portions we could look at in Mark. But you can go to Mark 10. But we're going to look at one portion. We're going to look at the, the aspect of being made like Christ or the way of Christ in serving. In serving. That the life of Christ is one of serving. And this is what you and I are called to. God is working in our lives to get us to become a servant. A servant. And I think that should be, and it is in many ways, elementary to the Christian faith. But I don't know if it's real. It's not that elementary in the Christian practice. The, the idea of it is very, oh yeah, I know that. But the practice of it, gosh, that's maturity. It's maturity, it, it, it's challenging, it's hard, it's difficult. But it is what Christ is after, is what God is after in you to make Christ in you. To be a servant in such a mighty way. 
And so my heart and my prayer for us is really just to look at the teaching of Jesus, to embrace this teaching of Jesus, and so that we can become a blessing to others as Christ example before us in so many ways. And so we'll read Mark 10, we'll start in verse 32, we'll go to verse 30, uh, 45, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we dive in and talk about the scriptures today. It says this, verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happening to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I would, that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to become indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall be so among you, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be saved, but to save and to give his life as a ransom for many. So dear heavenly father, Lord, we come before you and we ask father, Lord, that you would help us. God, we are incapable of grasping your word and the, and the beauty of it and the depth of it and the richness of it apart from your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to give us the ability to understand the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the thoughts of God in this passage, God, to work within us, to change us, to do things that we cannot do, God, that a man can't do, that no one can do, but only by the spirit does this revelation of the truth of God's word come and change us. So help us in our hearts to receive, help us in our minds to understand, in our ears to hear, God, And be with me, God, as I'm not capable, God, of handling your word properly, God, in a way. But, God, you are able to speak through me what you desire. And I pray, God, that you would be with us all. We love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So to understand this passage really well, um, one of the things that you have to kind of understand is the timeline of which it's taking place. Um, chapter 10 in Mark is getting close to the end of Jesus' life, if you're familiar with it. Um, really, chapters 8 through 10 is this sequence of Jesus beginning with his disciples on the path to Jerusalem. And this would be the last time that we know that Jesus actually visits Jerusalem with his disciples. This isn't the first time, it's the last time. And so we know that when Jesus is visiting Jerusalem, it's for a purpose. Okay, and so up in from chapters eight to ten, what you see is you see Jesus give three different predictions of his death, three different predictions of what's going to happen to him. He gives these predictions, and they basically go like this. You see the first one in Mark at chapter eight. It's a it's the uh, prediction of his death and his resurrection. And usually, what happens right actually every all three times, what happens is the he gives a prediction, and the disciples completely misunderstand him or ignore him, 
or, or just like, what? And then he corrects them. And he teaches them something about discipleship or about the life that they're called to. And this is exactly what he does in this passage of chapter 10. This is the last one that he does. And so when he does this, what he does is he, he's, he's going to, you're going to see that this, this is like the Bible here is not meant to be a book that is just like principles to draw out of, but it's meant to be, especially the narratives of the Bible like this, it is meant to be a book where the stories are felt. And so what he's going to do in this is you're going to see the reflection of your life and my life in this passage. We're going to, you're going to be faced with the tendencies of humanity of what we are and what we think. We are not much different than James and John in this passage, if we're being truthfully honest. And we're going to see these things. But what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus give the true teaching on what it means to go the way of Christ, which is the way of serving and of suffering. And so... I'm just going to jump in and I want you to think about it this way. I want to kind of go through it in a way where it's like, let's take, we're going to have three scenes in this, in this passage. Three different scenes. So if you could think of it that way, and I want you to think of it a way where it's like you could try your best, if you have an imagination, to feel the stories. To picture yourself to be a part of it. To feel what it's like to be in the midst of what's going on. And so understanding this, Jesus is taking his, his disciples to Jerusalem for the last time. All the years they've spent together. And they, I don't, I don't, certainly I'm not sure if they realize it's the last time. But all the years Jesus knows this is the last time and he's heading to Jerusalem. And so there's a couple of things I want to do. So the first scene I want us to look at is really verses 32 through 34. And the scene goes like this. It's so beautiful. It says, and they were on the road to going up to Jerusalem. So if you can imagine what this felt like. Here's the disciples. Here's Jesus. And they're walking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is so key there for us to understand because what we have to understand about Jerusalem here is that Jerusalem for Jesus is the place where his life and his mission will be fulfilled. So it's not something to just skip over like, oh, that's a, that's a little detail. No, when we look at Jerusalem, we have to understand that what it is here is that it's significant in our reading because it's basically telling us that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem to the place where Jesus would fulfill his earthly ministry. Jesus was going to the place where he would die. Jesus is going that way. He's going to the place where death is required of him. And this is going to be quickly what we're going to understand about the life of discipleship. That Jesus leads us to the place where we go. Where we follow after Christ. And he takes us to Jerusalem. And he takes us to places where we have to lay down our lives. To follow Christ is one that is to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, which is to follow him to a place where we lay down our lives. But we lay down our lives for a specific reason, because we only lay down our lives because he laid down his life. And the reason why he laid down his life was so that many men could know the father and be reconciled. So why do we go to Jerusalem? Not just for the sake of dying, but we lay down our lives so that others may receive life. And strength. And so this detail of just understanding right here that Jesus, it says very clearly, it's just on the road. You can imagine they're going up to Jerusalem. And it tells us that Jesus was walking ahead of them. And I love this because when I was reading this, I was just so moved by the thought that Jesus is ahead of all of them. Think about it. If you could see all the 12 and they're walking and, and we, there's other disciples with them at this time. But if you could see the 12 and Jesus and Jesus is pushing the pace, he's pushing the pace and he's pushing the pace and you have the 12 behind him and they're just trying to keep up. And it's like, why are you so eager to get to Jerusalem? Why are you so eager to get there? And what we understand is that the fact that Jesus is ahead, it, it gives us the insight or it implies that Jesus is urging and he is, he is ready to get to the place to be the suffering servant that he's called to be. 
He is, he is trying to get there as fast. He is ready for the move. He is ready to be everything, to fulfill his mission, to fulfill the purpose that what he came for, which we read in verse 45. He's ready to be there. There's a sense of urgency with Jesus. It's not like, I don't want to go. He's just fighting it. He's not, he's like, I'm going. I'm going. And when I think about this passage, when I think about this statement here, that Jesus is pushing the pace or he's moving the crowd real fast, you have to imagine that when Jesus is doing so, he's probably thinking of so many different Old Testament passages. There's a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 50, where it talks about how Jesus, or the the Messiah, doesn't say Jesus, but the Messiah, basically, would set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Meaning he would brace himself for Jerusalem. He'd be prepared to go. And it's like you can imagine that Jesus, though he was a man who had a, a will itself, that he submitted to the Father, that as he's going to Jerusalem, he is remembering, I have set my face towards Jerusalem. I have set my face for Jerusalem. I have set my face towards Jerusalem. I have given my life to Jerusalem, and I'm, nothing is going to keep me from that place. Nothing is going to keep me from fulfilling the purpose and the call that the Father sent me here to do, and that is to reconcile humanity to the Father. Nothing was going to stop him. And it's so interesting because what you see the disciples' response is this. It talks about how, what does it say? That they're amazed, right? They're amazed and they, and, and they were also afraid. It's like, and I wonder, I, I do wonder what, the, what they were thinking. I wonder if they understood what would take place in Jerusalem. According to the previous encounters that he has where he gives a prediction of his death and his resurrection, they didn't get it. So they probably didn't understand like why he's in such a hurry to get there. And if they did understand, they'd probably be like, bro, slow down, you're going to get killed there. I think to some degree they, they understood maybe, okay, it might not be good if we head there. And so they're probably afraid in that sense. But in some senses, maybe they're also thinking like, what, what, is, the, what is the rush? Like, what, what's the big deal? They just, they don't get it. But they're amazed. And I bet that they were amazed because of the look that was on Jesus' face. You know, the look upon Jesus' face was one of focus. It was one of focus. He set the example that he was focused to fulfill everything that the Father wanted. And everything that the Father planned for his life to be and to do. His mission, his mind was on his mission. And his purpose for, for, for coming to earth was burning within him. And it's like the disciples could see it on his face. They're afraid. They don't know what's going on. You see then what Jesus does is he recognizes. Like it's almost like he recognizes in this passage. When you get to verse uh, 32. He, be- he sees them. So he takes the 12 and he begins to talk to them. And this is the third time. And the final time he does. Where he says, look, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm gonna go- we're going up to Jerusalem. Like we are going up to Jerusalem. In other words... You're my follower. You're my disciple. You are learning the life of discipleship, which is the process of becoming like Christ. You too are coming to Jerusalem with me. He said, you're going to come and you're going to go to the place with me. And the son, he says, what's going to happen there is I'm going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn me to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, mock, spit, flog, kill him. And after three days, he would rise. I can only imagine that the verses that were rolling through Jesus' head would much like this. I, as he's going on this pace, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his, na- his mouth. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are all healed. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering and the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his hope for cry. I can imagine that as Jesus is telling the story to his disciples of what's going to happen, he's recalling all of the passages of scriptures that declare he will be bruised. He will be, he will be, his body will be, or not his body won't break any bones, but he will be abused in such a mighty way. He will be like a lamb that goes to the slaughter. He will not open his mouth. His beard will be ripped from his face. He will be beaten across the face. He will be whipped. All of the things, my joints, my heart has turned to wax, but all the while he will remember the ending of Psalms 22, which is a, a psalm that talks about Jesus' death, that the Father has not hid his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It's like as he's going, he's recalling, I will suffer, I will suffer, I will serve. I will be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but the Father will bring me back. I just imagine the scene. I could feel, you could see it. And it's incredible, and it just made me think and just ponder the fact that what Jesus is in this passage or in this first scene, it's like he is a man on a mission. He's a man on a mission and there's no distraction distracting him from this mission. No distracting him from this mission. And really I would say it like this. What is the mission of Jesus? Well he says it later on in the passage. But I would also say it here. Is that the mission of Jesus is for him to die and suffer for humanity. In other words it's him to be a servant for all of humanity. That's his mission. That's what Jesus is all about. That is what he's focused on. He is focused, his mission of serving, and he has understood that he is the suffering servant and that he is going to go accomplish this task. And what it screams to you and I is if Jesus, who's a man who's focused on the mission that the Father has laid out for us, as a, and we are his disciples, and we're becoming like him, it shifts our life to the place, is my life focused like Jesus' life focused to serve to let others have an opportunity to know God. Now, we know that we're not going to die for people's sins. Christ has already done that. Christ has paid the, path, the, the way for that. But the truth is, is that when you become a servant, when you embrace this, the, the life that Jesus was saying, I'm going because I'm going to fulfill it. When you have a focus on that, you begin to pursue opportunities to serve people so that they can come to know Jesus. You begin to pursue it. It's, you just don't, you can the Spirit will lead us and will stumble upon opportunities. But you also pursue that. You move with a focus, with an intent. It is our mission. Jesus, if it was your mission to be a servant, let it be a, my mission to be a servant. So how does this impact us? It really is this. He sends us to serve because he was sent. Jesus was sent to serve, so he sends us to serve. It is what we're called to be. And so it's really not this like for the disciples here, for us here. Our desire should be a, a sole focus on what God's mission is or what Jesus' mission is here and continuing that on in our lives. And it shouldn't be about looking for the next shiny new toy. Every few weeks as Christians, we get focused on something else. Oh, this is my new thing. Or this is, no, the mission of Jesus is my thing. That. And that is to be a servant. And, and, and the truth is, it's like, it, that's so unnatural. You are not naturally going to fall into servanthood. You won't. 
But the mission of Jesus becomes our mission. It becomes our thing. Not new shiny toys that are fun and like what we like the best. The very mission becomes that. And Jesus and God is wanting to work that in your life today. In my life. This is what he's doing with all of us together. And when he does that. When he begins that process. And we learn to embrace this. It becomes a beautiful thing that you see in the body of Christ. And we've had the, the, the benefit and the privilege to see that displayed from Pastor Lee's life. But not just from Pastor Lee's life, but down to so many others in our church. But no one could ever be a greater servant than Jesus. So we continue to seek to be, God, make me more like Christ. Make me more like Christ. Make me more like Christ. So the first scene is really just this. It is, the, it is that the way of Christ is a focused way. It is focused on the mission of Christ. And so you, you, you'd imagine, so after the first scene, you'd imagine how, okay, what would, what would come right after that? Man, that, that, I mean, just, right? He, he gathers his disciples and he's, he's with them and he's like saying, okay, look guys, that's my, uh, what's it called? The announcements, my announcements. <laughs> um, you could imagine he's, he's gathering his disciples and he says to them, you know, all these things about his death and about his mission and what he's focused on and they can see it. And so you would imagine that they would be like, Wanting to ask questions about that. Well, well, like, explain to me. Like, what do you mean? Or, or they would at least be like, what, what do you think? Like, they don't. Like, what, look at the passage. What does it say? Verse 35. What do you, what do you see? Like, right off the back, this is what you see. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's like, it, it, it's like he gets in a huddle with his disciples and he's got them around and he's saying like, hey guys, this is the fourth quarter, you know, this is the moment and everything. And, and, and it's like, by the way, could you do this for us? Like, it's just totally like out of left field. Like what in the world? Like, wh- did you even hear him? Did you even recognize what he said? Or did he just go totally just did, go past you and you didn't even think about it? Like, it, 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 that's exactly what happened with them. And what it tells me, what it says to me very clearly is that the disciples here had no concern for the things that concerned Jesus. And yet they were followers of Christ here. They were not concerned with what concerned Jesus. They were not concerned with the mission of Jesus. They were concerned with what they wanted. And I think this is the tendency that we see in our lives, that we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with God, is that there are times as followers of Christ and Christians that we really, we're not really concerned about what Jesus wants. We're not really concerned about playing the servant role that Jesus has exemplified for us. We're more concerned about what Jesus can do for me. It's really my big concern. And I don't know if Jesus said, I really want you, you know, like, well, that, that's great, Jesus. It's really good that you're going to die. But could you do this for me? Right? Like that, this is the reality. Like, can we just be honest with ourselves? Can we be honest with one another that we all have the tendency to be selfish people? And put our desires in front of the desires of God? Put our wants in front of the wants of God? Putting our missions in front of the mission of God? This is the reality. But what you see, it's just so strange, is not only that, it's like, they ask the question, but then it's what they ask, right? Like, look what they ask. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Like, they want position. They want position. They're not asking to be like Jesus. They're asking for titles and recognitions. And they're asking to preach. And they're asking to teach Bible studies. And they're asking for sing their own solos. They're asking for their own glory and prominence. That's what they're after. Prominence. Position. 
This is the things they want. They crave it. We crave it. Can we be honest? Can we be real Christians in here? Can we not come to church and act like that? We don't crave recognition or somebody to say my name from the pulpit. We all do these things. And we see ourselves in these disciples because what they're after is they're after their own glory, their own name. They want what they want. The disciples showed by the very question that they were not concerned with what concerned Christ. Because Christ was concerned before this, we see this from the previous point, that Christ was concerned with being a servant. And what was to take place in Jerusalem? The disciples were not concerned with that. They were concerned for their own agenda. Because the disciples and simply this, the way of Christ for us, we have to understand, the way of Christ is not about my agenda. It's not about my agenda. And I, I, I say this because when you look at it, it's like they wanted the position they wanted the respect in the house of God, whatever, all of these different things. They wanted, their, they wanted their pieces. They wanted to receive praise after, you know, not literally, but we do this, right? They, they wanted to receive the praise, or we wanted to receive praise after we teach or preach. Good sermon. Just, I'm just being real with you. I'm being very real here. But what I love about the way that Jesus responds to them is that it shows me this, is that yes, the disciples were not concerned with the agenda of Jesus. They were concerned with their own agenda. But Jesus was concerned with them becoming like him. This is what he's concerned with. If you look with me and you read on, it says in verse 37, or verse 36, and he said to them, what do you, or sorry, verse uh, 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And I just kind of wonder, like, we are, you know, like, come on, man. Like the arrogance of that statement. <laughs> like, really? Like, I think we do it. God, I can do that. No, it's just arrogant. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I, would, I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to the left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been given. In other words, the Father will choose that. But what you see here is that Jesus says to them, are you willing to go the way I go? Are you willing to allow the, the work of discipleship to happen in your life? To suffer because I suffer. To drink because I drink. To go the route I go. And Jesus says, you will. And this is what it screams to me, is that they were concerned with their agenda, but what Jesus was really concerned about with them is for them to become like him. This is what Jesus is concerned about for you and me. He's concerned our, that we become like him. This is the work that God is trying to do within our very lives. He is more focused on their willingness to suffer with him and like him than he is whether they will be on his right or left. As the disciples of Jesus, as we are the disciples of Jesus, I just like, I keep thinking about this and it's like, I have to be, I'm reminded of myself that Jesus is more concerned, not with, he's more concerned with me being like him and not my ministry. He's more concerned with my character than he is with my ministry. He's more concerned with the way you treat your spouse than he is how you taught your Bible study. He's more concerned with the way you speak to your children than he is. With the way you lead worship or whatever it might be. What, you put it in. Or the way you, you get recognition from whoever. Whatever it is in the church world. The Christianese world. He's concerned about us, our character changing from one glory to the next. Because his goal is to make us like him. This is what Romans 8.28 is all about. We love the verse, don't we? What's the verse say? 
That's right. You got it. Wait, I was going to paraphrase it, but Andrew had it quoted. Basically, that all things do work together for us, for those who love Christ, who love God, for the good, for the good. But I think we so often pause at that verse 28 because we love that it sounds good because the truth is we say, yeah, I want the good. And we determine what the good is like the disciples did. The good is prominence. The good is this. The good is that. No, 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 no. Verse 29 tells you what the good is. The the verse 29 is this, is that we are conformed to the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is the greatest thing that can happen in my life, that I can start becoming more like Christ. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what God's doing with your life. And so sometimes we wonder, why has this prayer not been answered? Why do I not get recognized? Why do I not have this position? Why, whatever it might, why am I not healed? I don't know. I can tell you this though, that all of those things, why they may not be happening is because God is allowing you to become conformed to Jesus and to become more like Him through those things. And if He just snapped His fingers and did everything according to my agenda or your agenda, this would not be the case. We would not become like Jesus. We would not become like Jesus. He is not a genie in the bottle for us, but he is making us like him. And so we have to understand this. The way of Christ, it isn't about my agenda, but it's about what God's doing in my life. He's going to make me like him. This is what he was concerned about with his very, his very disciples here, with James and John. And, and I feel this way so often. It was a few months ago, I was praying and, and, and God just, y'all, he, Oh, I love that he rebukes me and I love that he's challenging me and I love that he's pushing me into a place to learn weakness and, and to, and to know what it means to be a servant. Like I'm so far, but I'm, I'm, I'm praying, God, get your glory out of my life. Change what I am. Because a few months ago I was in prayer and he just dealt with me and he just, he did tell me, I don't care about your ministry. I care about your character. I care about your character to be like my son. And I just, I just sat like, gosh, I care so much. About being successful. You know. And he just wants me to be like him. And so I want to adopt Jesus' agenda. His mission. His character. And I want to embrace that he's working that in me. I love how he doesn't bash his disciples right there. He could have. You idiots. Why would you ask for that? Like, But it's like. No, I care that you're going to be like me. And it's what he does with us. Like, Felix, you're an idiot. Why do you care so much about that? I care that you're going to become like me. And he begins to work in me and deal with me so patiently and beautiful. I just, I love it. And then the second, that's the second scene. The way of Christ isn't about my agenda. But the third scene is really the meat of his teaching. And it's this, is the way of Christ is about others. You see this in this scene here. You see, you see the disciples, right? You go from verse 40 to 41 and you see this statement. And then the ten heard it and they begin to be indignant at James and John. They begin to get angry, right? And this, all this really reveals is that they're no different. Right? They got praise or they got the position. And some people, a lot of scholars believe that James and John were actually first cousins of Jesus. Um, because of his, their mothers. And so some people think that they use their family ties in to get tight with Jesus and then, and then to like, hey, by the way, you know, we'll throw Peter out, even though he's always been with us in the close three, we'll throw him out and we'll do this. Some people think that. But the truth is like all of them have the same problem. Like they're no different. Like they, they got indignant because they also want prominence and position in the kingdom of God. They want stature. They want to be recognized. They want to have authority. They want to be great. They want this. And so Jesus recognizes what's going on inside the disciples because they're getting angry and so forth. And he calls them to him and he says to them, you know that those 
who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And this is what I love about Christianity and Jesus, is that the way the world does things is so different than our God. It's so backwards, right? Like, you, you don't become great by being less in this world. You become great by increasing. You be, the, the greater you become, the more people serve you. But in the kingdom of God, the greater you become, the more people you serve. Or the more people you serve, the greater you become. Like, that's so backwards, right? Like, and so it's like, do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Do you want that? Then you better learn to start embracing the life of the servant, Jesus. And, 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 and I just love how he just makes it so clear. Like the Gentiles, they lord over them, right? They use their authority for abuse and to manipulate and to control and to have what they want and so forth of like that. But what Jesus' kingdom is all about is one that serves. And this is really just, it's just, it's just exactly what Jesus does. Nothing he ever tells us to be or do is anything he did not do himself. In any way, right? It's just, it's just not. In the world, we become more important when people are serving us, but not in Jesus' world. In Jesus' world, we become more important when we actually learn to serve people. His ways are so opposite, and he makes it clear that they're opposite. And, he says, and then he says, right, if you want to be the, the first, you better be a slave to all. And I don't know, I don't know anybody that's running for that position. I don't know anybody that's racing for that position. It's not natural. It's not in you and it's not in me. It's in Jesus. But Jesus Christ is in me and he, I'm getting to become like him. Discipleship, the process of being made like Jesus is happening in my life. And slowly, slowly, day after day, don't ever, don't ever just this, not have a, a, a great understanding or love for the day-to-day Christian life. Because day by day, this is happening in you also. As much as the big miraculous moments, the fact that God day by day can get us to become more like Jesus is just as miraculous. The change that happened in Ross Kibido is just as miraculous as Sarah walking. I believe that. I really do. And Sarah believes that. The change that happened in him, where he learned to become more of a servant, where he exemplified what it meant to be a husband who would get down and do everything for his wife. That's miraculous, because we're not that in any capacity. We're just not. But the main question is, okay, so this is what greatness is. It's to be a servant. It's to be a slave of all. And this is what Jesus is doing in us. And this is what he wants for us. And he's, and he's correcting our understanding of what it means to be great. Greatness is not to lord over people, to be mighty but it is to serve. But then he links it. But why? Like, well, even though that's true, why should we still become servants and slaves to others? Is it greatness? No, the truth really is, is verse 45. Verse 45 tells us, for, for, it's like this connection here, for, for, for first among you must be a slave all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why we embrace to be a servant. This is why we seek the work of, of God in our lives to be conformed to the image of Christ, to go down the path of discipleship because Jesus did this. He did this perfectly in every way. He fulfilled this in the, all the ways you can imagine. The Son of Man clearly says, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Could we just stop and think on that? 
Jesus came to serve us. The God who created everything came to serve us. He served us. He served me. He's worthy. He's worthy of seeking after. He's worthy of going down to Jerusalem. He's never been more beautiful to me. I just, I marvel at him. I pray to God. I pray to God, Lord, help me. Help me to embrace this path of discipleship, of being a servant. Because you are one. He came not to be served, but to serve. He served us perfectly. The one who created everything. He gave his life a ransom for many. This It says there, and we could look at this, and what does that mean? Ransom means this. It's, it's a payment, or, or it really means to deliver by purchase, right? And we know that Jesus purchased us by his precious blood. That was shed on Calvary. That the ransom, it was paid by his blood that was shed. And through that, he delivered prisoners of war. He delivered us as slaves. He did all of it. It was, it was the perfect payment. It was his blood. And from that, what happened was is that when he purchased us, our slaves, the masters that ruled us, had to let us go. We sung about it today. Sin no more has dominion. Death is, can, can be laughed at. Hell has no, is no place for us. There's nothing there. And Satan had to set us free and let us go. Jesus, ransom, the one who gave us all for us, who is the perfect servant, the suffering servant, is our example. And so it just simply means this. If he serves, we must serve. If he stoops low, we stoop low. If he gives his life, we give our lives. We embrace the work of discipleship. We embrace the life of being made like Jesus in our lives. Like we cling to the cross. The beauty of the cross and what Jesus has done. To, oh, God. I'm going to close with a story. And it's a familiar story. You all know it so well. But I want you, again, I want you to consider the, the feelings of this story. I want you to consider the setting. Jesus and his disciples are entering into an upper room for their last meal together. John chapter 13. And he's with them and they're going up to this for their last supper. And Jesus knows it's his last supper with his disciples. And he talks about how he has loved them perfectly and he loves them greatly. He's done everything right with them. And Jesus is with his disciples in this room. And, and, I, and I often thought, what was that room like before we read about the things that we love in that story? What was that room like? If you're familiar with the disciples... I think it was a tense room. Because up until this point, Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, before they got to Jerusalem, were debating and fighting who's the greatest. 
fighting. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Back and forth. I'm better than you. I preach better. I sing better. I, I, I serve better. I do all this better. I, I'm, I'm more organized. Whatever it is, as silly as it might be, we argue over super stuff, but they're all debating who's the greatest. And if you look at the account of Luke, it even talks about in the upper room, they're still fighting. It's like, they're still fighting. And so you can imagine they're in this upper room. They've come into the city of Jerusalem, all right? And on the way to the city of Jerusalem, when they get there, it's a triumphal entry. Everybody is praising Jesus. Okay, so they were afraid of going to Jerusalem. Now they get to the Jerusalem and they're seeing the palms get laid down for them. Like it's a mighty moment. And I bet that they thought the kingdom's about to get set up. Look, the city wants him as king. We're about to all be top-notch dogs. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And so you can could, you could feel it, right? You can feel it. This, like, this pulse for who's the greatest. They're probably anticipating Jesus is about to set up the kingdom. He's about to do it all. It's going to be glorious. Man, that sounds great. And, and so the rooms, I would imagine, has this tense air of that sort of pride. And I, I, I'd imagine you could smell the arrogance or feel the pride when you've walked into a room of that sort. And what happens in the story you all know so well is that Jesus teaches one of the greatest lessons throughout all the Bible that we know of what it means to be a servant. You can see what happened was the disciples went in there and apparently Jesus has to wash feet because feet were not washed. And the custom of the day was that when somebody would come into the house, there was a slave or a servant that would wash the feet. Now for these 12, there was none there. Clearly they would have been washed. But somebody had to do it. Somebody had to clean the yuck off of these people's feet. Somebody had to make that move. And I can picture it. Every one of them thinking, it's not going to be me. Because whoever makes the first move is weaker. It's not going to be me. I'm not making that move. You know, I could, I, you could see. You ever, you ever shook some men? Men, this is weird. I don't know where this comes from. For this arrogant thing where it's like you shake hand and whoever lets go first is like the weaker person. It's like, <laughs> what in the world? It's almost like that kind of feeling. Or it's like, whoever makes the first move, I could just see the room being so tense. And it's like, the, the need is obviously in front of you. You got a bunch of dirty feet at a dinner table. And the way they sat at a table was not like we do where the feet are hidden underneath the table. They're like this. So the feet are with them, in your face, like right there in your face. Very possible, it's not certain, but it's possible there's animal manure on their feet. You can smell it, and it's like, somebody do something. But no, no, because if I do something, I'm weaker than you. If I make the first move, I'm the weakest. And in the midst of that... The creator of the universe who holds the stars in the sky, who has all glory, and like we've talked about in Hebrews 1, who radiates the perfect impression of God, who is everything and glorious and mighty, cuts through the pride and the arrogance by taking off his outer garment, putting on a towel, and makes the first move and washes feet. I can imagine maybe some of the disciples were like, whoa, whoa, no, no, not you. And he's like, this is what it means to be great. He'd only taught the lesson and they still don't get it. From Mark 10. It's like, this is what it means to be great. It's to be a servant. It's to embrace 
the work of God in your life to serve everyone. And as we serve everyone, we learn that we actually get to bring life to people. Because in Jesus serving, he brought life to people. I can just imagine that room. And what I love about it, if you want to turn there to uh, John, John 13. And uh, musicians, you can come up. Oh God, we just thank you for being. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are beautiful. And you are worthy of following. You are worthy of emulating and walking after. And we know we can't do it, but Lord, I just thank you, Jesus. You're so precious to me. I don't know if Anna's here, but if, or Joy, you know that song? We can sing it maybe later. I don't know. Never mind. I'll, I'll, you are my life, oh precious Christ. You know that one? Yeah. Oh, sorry, Ethan. Oh, well. We're human. We're human. If you turn to this passage and you look what Jesus does here, and I think it's so beautiful, is that Jesus, so he does all this, he washes, right? It says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment. So you can imagine he just put his outer garment back on. And I just love it. He, he never said a word when he was doing it. You don't see anything about like, he just takes his clothes, he takes his outer garment off, puts a towel and starts doing it. But he puts his outer garment back on and resumes his place. The feet are clean. And he says, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this is clearly a command. Clearly. This is not a suggestion by Jesus. This is the life of the disciple. Teacher and Lord. We call him teacher and Lord, don't we? A disciple would say that he's a teach, he's our teacher and Lord. For I've given you an example. He didn't say I gave you something that you are not going to do, that only I can do. No, no, he, he wants us to be like him. Now it's going to not come from you, I will establish that. But the truth is, he wants us to be like him. That you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And verse 17 has stopped, caused me to pause. He does not say, blessed are you if you know them. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And the reason why I read that last portion is because, church, the life of a servant is a blessed life, according to Jesus. It is not an easy life. Certainly, it's not an easy life. It's not easy to do things for people who've betrayed you. But it's a blessed life. If you know it, if you know what it says, right? It does nothing. You have to do it. And God has been dealing with my life so greatly on these matters. For a few months now. Where I've been walking through a difficult time. Because of some things that happened in my life. and God has challenged me in every way to be a servant. And, and, and the first thing was, that I, I was to simply just pray for a person. I didn't want to do that, right? It's like, I don't want to pray for them. They, they did this. 
pray for him. And that was the first step. But the Lord would never, it's like he just kept inching me more and more and more to be a servant towards this person. And I just want you to know that I've experienced the blessed life as I've walked in obedience to this. It's been satisfying. It's been happy. It's been joyful that, oh God, to be like you. You have made me like you and I get to walk in it. It's it's fun. It's fun when you get to do something for somebody that has harmed you and hurt you. And you realize it's only because Jesus is making you like him. The Lord was asking me this question. I don't know, a few months ago. But it was the question, dealing with all of this. I was just thinking, who am I willing to serve? Who am I willing to serve? God just told me, Felix, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who are you willing to serve. It's who are you unwilling to serve. And then he said, go serve them. And I'll, I'll tell you, I did not obey immediately or have perfect obedience. But I learned to allow him to do a little bit and a little bit and a little bit more. Where I'm believing God to take me even further than before. And so church, my plea and my cry to us is this. We are all, if you're born again, you are a disciple of Jesus. Do not try to say Christian disciple. There's no such thing as this mega Christian thing that's a disciple. Like they're together, okay? The word disciple is used over 260 times in the New Testament. Christians use three times, okay? So you can talk to me about that if you disagree with the facts are in the Bible. We are disciples of Jesus. We are learners and followers and we're on the process of becoming like Jesus. And one of the ways that he is trying to get us to be like him is to be a servant like him. As Mark teaches us and John teaches us. And so my prayer is simply this, is for us to really consider and ask the Lord to make us this today. That's all we can do. And then do it. Now, I thank God for what Pastor Lee has taught us for years so beautifully. Because without this, I would have made myself do it in my own flesh. When I was a younger, a younger man, a younger person. But we have been taught faithfully from the scriptures that it is the Holy Spirit that's going to work in your life. And it is the grace of God that is going to divinely influence you to embrace this life of servanthood, this life of discipleship to be made like him. And so you you labor with that grace. You work with that grace. You fight with that grace. You, you, you use the grace of God to go forward into battle. It's not just some passivity. It's a true life forward. And so I, I just want to offer us for you to, to think and to just ask the question. Number one, this is if you don't know Jesus, as you, if you have not decided to follow Jesus, he's worthy of you following or of your life following him today. And I know there's people in this room that have not decided to follow Jesus. They have not decided to become a disciple by putting their faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done and, and, and following after him with their life. I know that. If you haven't, I just want you to know he's worthy of it. And my first call would be to you to come to Jesus. But my second call would simply be for the believer in here today is would you embrace this life of servanthood? And maybe you, you come to the altars and you have a struggle too. God, give me a baby step forward. It's probably what it's going to be. 
But it's an ongoing work that will happen forever. So if you would stand with me. The altars are open. We're going to enter into a time of the altar where we, we present ourselves before the Lord. And be honest with Him. Is your life focused on the mission of God, which is, or the mission of Christ, which is a life of servanthood? Or is your life more focused on your own agendas and what you want and positions and titles and recognition? Is your life concerned for others in any way? Ask yourself the question, who are you willing to, un- who, you are, who are you unwilling to serve? And go serve them. So Lord God, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for your beauty. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you're so precious. I thank you that you are above us. And your, your, your example is incredible. And Lord, you say if we follow your example, we're going to be blessed. That doesn't mean easy, but it means blessed. It means happy. It means it's good to be good. So God, I pray that you would help us in this moment to be like you, Jesus. Oh, I just want to love you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being a ransom for me, for everyone in this room. And if, Lord, if there are people in here who have not decided to follow you, I pray that today they'd put their saving faith in you and they would follow you because you're worthy of following. Love you, Jesus. Praise you, God.